You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. This is entitled Pulling Together. We're talking about how you can develop and maintain God's harmony in your home. And this morning, I want you to look with me at attitudes which assure anguish. Attitudes which assure anguish. If you let yourself fall victim to these attitudes, if these attitudes become your attitudes, then I can guarantee you on the authority of the Word of God that your family is headed for deep, deep trouble. And so this morning we're going to be looking at these attitudes which assure anguish, and then we're going to be looking at God's answer for them. You have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 3. Let's stand together. And if you don't happen to have your Bible with you, the words will be up on the screen. I'd like for us to read these uh, these scripture verses aloud together. We're going to be looking at this first family there in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to see what it was that led up to the commission of the first sin, uh, the consequences of which you and I are living with today. And of course, God's answer for that is in Jesus Christ. But you'll see these attitudes which assure anguish in these verses. So read them aloud, if you will, please. Together with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 of Genesis chapter 3. Let's read together. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. And my prayer is that in the moments which follow, this word will become so alive to us. Transport us, Father, to the Garden of Eden. Help us to see what it was that led up to the commission of that first sin, these attitudes which assure anguish. And then, Father, help us to turn our attention inward, for the story of Adam and Eve is certainly our story. Help us to see, Lord, that there are certain attitudes which we might possess in our hearts and live out and share with other members of our family which will guarantee that our family has serious trouble. And Father, show us the answer. Show us how we can be delivered from these attitudes which assure anguish through Jesus Christ and personal faith in Him and looking to Him for victory day by day. 
And then, Father, as we come to the close of this service at the invitation time, Lord, my prayer is that you would bring to this altar those who would trust Jesus as their Savior and others in whose hearts you're at work and encouraging them to become a part of this church family. Lord, I pray that to this altar would come those who would say, I see those attitudes in my heart and I want God to deliver me from them in the power through the blood and the wonderful work, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So once again, Father, I pray you would open our eyes. We are here to worship you and to hear from you what your Spirit says through your Word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Would you be seated, please? Have you ever heard the phrase, you're cruising for a bruising? I don't know about you, but around our house when our children were growing up, there were those days when it was just obvious that before the day was over, one of our children, or maybe all of them, were going to be severely disciplined. In fact, I can remember an occasion or two when uh, my wife would say to me, or she, or I would say to her, you know, I'm just waiting for them to cross the line. They're cruising for a bruising. In fact, on one occasion, and in fact, probably on 100 occasions, I have said to my wife, you know, there's nothing wrong with them that a good whipping wouldn't help. And the truth of the matter is, we sometimes in our own hearts develop these attitudes which inevitably lead to sin. Are the attitudes themselves sin? Well, you know, if carelessness is sin, yes, they are. But there is a sense in which, while you can't quite put your finger on it, you know it is an attitude that is headed towards serious trouble. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I have the opportunity to counsel a lot of people about their families and what's going on in their hearts and in their homes and have done so over the years. And many times, just in visiting with people, I hear reflected in their speech and I see in their attitude towards certain issues why they're having struggles in their home. They have in their heart, they are reflecting these attitudes which just guarantee that ultimately you're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And so this morning we're going to be looking as we continue this series on the family, pulling together how to develop and maintain God's harmony in the home, we're going to be looking at these attitudes which assure anguish. And I'm going to ask you to ask yourself uh, before the Lord, under the searching scrutiny of God's Holy Spirit, the searchlight of the Holy Spirit in your own heart, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, are, are any of these attitudes uh, something that I possess, something which I'm reflecting in my own home? And so we're going to go to the Garden of Eden, and we're going to go once again to this first family. This was the time in their life before sin had entered the human race. There was no sin in, on this created order here. And Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had been charged by God to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, have dominion over it. And God, you remember, had said to them, now there, there's all this fruit of all these trees, and you can eat of any of it, with one exception, and that is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you will recall then that Satan came in the form of a serpent. Now, I just need to mention a couple of things here. First of all, Satan has already been dispossessed from heaven 
because he wanted to be God of his own kingdom. And, of course, he tried to usurp the position of God. He had an incredible position in heaven as a cherubim. I mean, he was an anointed cherubim reflecting the beauty and the glory of God, but that wasn't enough for him. And so you remember that God had dispossessed him from heaven, but he's still looking for a kingdom. And he knew that God had given Adam and Eve this responsibility for subduing and having dominion over the earth. So it stands to reason, he thought, you know, if I could get Adam and Eve to surrender to me and to my will, then what's theirs becomes mine. And so this earthly kingdom over which they're to have dominion would then become mine. I could become God of this age. I could become prince of this earth. And so that's his desire. And he came to them in the form of a serpent. Now, there's no uh, telling here at, the, at this point that the serpent was, as we think of a serpent today, a snake writhing on the ground. As a matter of fact, uh, part of the judgment of God against him was that that serpent from that moment on would, would crawl on the ground and eat the dust of the earth. But, but even today, you know, there is this incredible grace and beauty. And so here uh, Satan came in the form of a serpent and he catches Eve off guard. She is somewhat at this moment, it's obvious, separated from, from Adam. He's not far behind. Maybe he's right there someplace close. But Satan doesn't engage Adam in the conversation. He engages Eve in the conversation. And he raises a question in her mind. He says, can't you eat of any of the fruit? And she says, well, yeah, but with one exception. God says we can't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, she threw in a little something, which I'm not so sure maybe Adam hadn't said, although God didn't say it. If you look earlier, God said, you are not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you notice what it was that Eve said to Satan? Uh, she, she said to him, God says we shall not eat of it or even touch it. And I can just imagine Adam. See, God had given that responsibility to Adam. I can imagine Adam when he's talking to Eve saying, Eve, uh, now I want to tell you something. God's, God's given us a command. We can't eat the fruit of that tree. And I can see him adding it. He said, now you can't even touch it. Don't even, don't even reach out and touch it or you'll die. And so she quotes that to the devil, even though we don't find that in God's original command. She says, you know, we can't eat of it. We can't even touch it. For in the day that we do that, we'll die. Well, Satan said, you, you won't die which is lie number one. He's the father of lies. He said, here's the deal. He said, God's sort of jealous about this whole thing. He knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him. You see, the promise that you can be God of your own universe is the oldest lie in the Bible. There are whole religions built on that. Mormonism is built upon that promise. You get to be God of your own universe, for instance. And so that's one of the oldest lies of the Bible. And so he says, you won't become, uh, you won't die. You'll just become like God, knowing good and evil. Well, there's a half-truth there. They would know evil experientially. Up to then, they had experienced good. They would know evil. They would know it experientially, which they had not known up to that moment. And then he appealed to her physical senses. The Bible says when she saw the fruit, hmm, that it was good for food. Here's the taste. And then to her soul, you know, that it was much desired to make one wise. She, she took of it. She just made a decision. She knew what was right. She knew what was wrong. She had just quoted what God had said. She took of it and ate. And then she turned to Adam, and he ate of it. And on the spot, they both died. Now, they didn't die physically. They kept on living physically. They didn't die soulishly. They kept on thinking, and they had emotions, and they kept on making decisions. 
but they died spiritually. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. Up to then they had walked with God in perfect harmony, but now they're hiding from God. All of a sudden their eyes are open, the Bible says. They see themselves in shame and they're running from God. They're trying to cover themselves. And of course God comes to them. He finds them there in the Garden of Eden. And he begins to deal with them. He deals with the devil. He pronounces a curse on him. And then he deals with Adam and Eve. And as a matter of fact, as a part of that, you remember God even prophesies the coming of the Messiah. He tells the devil that he'll bruise the heel of man, but that one of these days a man will be born of woman that will strike the death blow to his head. And that's why Satan was always on a manhunt. And in history, whenever anybody was born that pretended deliverance, the devil would try to kill him. And when Moses was born, you remember there was this whole arena where all the male children that were being born in Egypt were supposed to be killed. When Jesus was born. There was a manhunt. You remember? Herod sent out all these soldiers to kill all the male children two years of age and under because, you see, there was this prophecy that a son will be born of woman who will strike the death blow to your head, the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. But when God said, uh, Adam, what have you done? He said, well, the truth of the matter is the woman that you gave me, she tempted me and I ate. And he turned to the woman. He said, is this true? And she said, well, it really wasn't me. It was the devil. He made me do it. The devil tempted me. No one would take responsibility. Now I want you to look with me briefly at five attitudes which assure anguish. If these are a part of your life, part of your family, you're headed for trouble. Attitude number one, which assures anguish, is indifference. Indifference. Now, what do I mean by indifference? You see it here in the Scripture. It is knowing God's truth without being personally committed to upholding it. It is knowing God's truth without being personally committed to upholding it. You see, Adam and Eve both knew God's truth in this event. They knew from what God had said and from what God had shown them that if they were to eat of the fruit of that tree, they would die. They knew the truth of God. But for some reason, there was not a personal commitment to uphold the truth of God. Now listen, is it possible that in your life and in your family, there are some truths, godly truths, you know them. Your other family members know them. They know that you know them. But they also know that you are not personally committed to upholding them. I mean, just take a brief journey through the Ten Commandments. Is it possible that something else or someone else in your life really is God to you? Look at your checkbook, see how you spend your money. Look at your daytimer, see how you spend your time. Is it possible someone else is God to you? You know the truth of God but you're not personally committed to upholding it. What about the Lord's Day? What about the Lord's Day? You know the truth of God, but are you personally committed to upholding it? You say, well, you know, I mean, that's the only day that I can have to myself. It was never meant to be a day to yourself. Well, that's the only day that I can participate in recreation. Listen, leisure time is not the same as rest. Rest is to set that day aside to... To, to worship the Lord and to serve, that, serve the Lord. You see, you know the truth of God, but you don't uphold the truth of God. You see, that would be the problem there. What about truth itself? 
are the times in your life when you know what the Bible says, don't bear false witness, but you think, you know, it'd just be better if I didn't come clean on this issue. It'd be better if I just didn't tell the truth about this. What about covetousness, wanting what others have, wanting what doesn't belong to you and saying, I won't be happy until I have it, knowing the truth of God but not upholding it, not personally committed to upholding it. What about moral purity? What about moral purity? What do you invite into your home? Knowing the truth of God without being personally committed to upholding it. And so is it possible that in your life you are leaving some legacy that says, well, you know, Dad knows, Mom knows the truth. They know what God says. But, but in our family, we selectively choose what we are going to do in a spiritual fashion related to God. It ought to be true in your family that if they know you know something to be God's truth, they also know that you will bow yourself to upholding it. And so the first attitude that assures anguish is to know the truth of God. Somebody comes in and says, Daddy, you know you ought not to do that. Or we ought not to go there. Or you ought not to watch that. Or we ought to go, we ought to be in church. Or, or we ought to be good stewards of our resources. The legacy that you leave in your home ought to be this. If I know something to be the truth of God, I will personally commit myself to upholding it. If you don't, you have an attitude that will assure anguish. It will be guaranteed that ultimately there will be difficulties in your home. James 4.17 says this, that if a man knows what is right in his heart and does it not, to him it is sin. Sin is not just doing what you ought not to do. Sin is not doing what you ought to do. And so knowing the truth of God without being personally committed to upholding it, that's an attitude which will assure anguish. Here's a second attitude which will assure anguish, and that's an attitude of independence. Independence. That's such an emphasis in our nation, in our society, isn't it? I'm my own person. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to make the decisions on my own. I'm not going to let anybody else run my life. I'm going to be captain of my ship. Nobody's going to boss me around. We have this independent spirit. Well, Adam and Eve had an independent spirit. As a matter of fact, I want you to know what Eve did. You see, she made a decision without respect for the heart of her mate, and that's what independence is in the family. It is making a decision without respect for the heart of your mate. Eve most certainly had heard from Adam what God had said about that tree and about that fruit. I mean, she went on even to amplify it. She said to the devil, she said, we can't eat it, we can't even touch it. Now, where did she hear that? She knew Adam had told her what God had said. But in this environment, she made a decision without respect for the heart of her mate. Now, I want to explain this as carefully as I can because there is a perverted look at this which says that, uh, um, that as long as your mate doesn't want to, you know, all your mate has to say is, well, I don't like that, I don't want to do that, and then you just don't do it. Well, then you can just be dragged around. Your family can be dragged around by negativism. 
In other words, you're just always not doing things you don't like to do as opposed to doing those things which are right and positive. And we're not always right. We're not always perfect. I can show you some illustrations. For instance, it was Abraham who, who listened to the heart of his wife and went right into sin by committing uh, moral sin with Hagar. I mean, there's, there's a sense in which we suffer for that insistence on her part. And I can show you other examples in the Scripture. Husbands and wives are not always 100% right about everything. But now here's what this means, and I, want you, I pray you'll listen carefully to this. It's so very, very important. You should never make a decision in which you walk away from the heart of your mate. You just ignore. You run roughshod over the heart. In other words, you don't consult, you don't care, or maybe you even know, you know, my wife or my husband would not appreciate this, or my wife or my husband doesn't really feel strongly about this. And somehow... Uh, you know, so often in our society, we say, well, you know, she didn't want me to do this, but I had to buy this. Or he didn't want us to go there, but I already made a point. I'm already made reservations. The truth of the matter is so many couples are separated in hearts, although they live under the same roof, because of this spirit of independence, not caring how your partner feels. A long time ago, my wife and I made a decision that neither one of us would press forward in some direction unless it had the endorsement of our partner's heart. That if we had one partner who said, I don't feel good about that, I don't feel right about that, that meant one of two things. Either we didn't need to do it or we need to wait until God brought assurance to the heart of that husband or to the heart of that mate. Now, I want to tell you something. God has saved us from some serious trouble on more than just a few occasions. Just because one of us was not hearing God like the other of us was hearing God. And there's a reason God puts us together in families. And so an independent spirit says, I don't care what my wife says. I don't care what my husband says. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to buy. This is where I'm going to go. This is what I'm going to sign us up for. Men come home and tell their wives, well, I've decided to take a new job. We're moving. Our men come home and their wife will say to them, look, I've, I bought the following or I signed us up for this and, and totally ignore the heart or the spirit of your mate and you become farther and farther and farther apart. And so a spirit of independence Making decisions without respecting the heart of your mate is an attitude that will assure anguish. Eve made a decision. She didn't take into account anything that Adam had said other than to know that he, he had expressed that they should not eat of that. They shouldn't, as he, she said, even touch it. Here's a third attitude that will assure anguish in your home. Irresponsibility. Irresponsibility. What does it mean to be irresponsible? I believe there's a sense in which Adam was irresponsible. You see, irresponsibility is allowing a family member's destructive behavior to go unconfronted. Allowing a family member's destructive behavior to go unconfronted. We don't find any record here that Adam said, Eve, wait, don't do that. Or when tempted by Eve, when, when, when handed the fruit by Eve and said, here, I've eaten of this, you eat of it, saying, no, Eve, I've told you, I can't do that, that's wrong, that's wrong in the guise of God. Allowing a family member's destructive behavior to go unconfronted. You know something that I see because of all of the, 
the perverted approaches to child rearing that you can read about these days. And you have all these people that stay up all night and they talk giving advice that doesn't come from the Bible and people go out and try to practice it in their home and they meet disaster. But you know what I discover so many times? I discover parents, for instance, who'll say, well, I know they shouldn't do that, but man, if I, if I waited in and, and told them about that, man, there'd be a fight. So... Well, I, you know, I felt uncomfortable about my husband signing up for that particular kind of cable vision, but I knew that if I told him that, that that really, you know, we'd have a big argument. So? You say, well, you're not for fights or you're not for argument. Well, I'm definitely not for failing to confront evil in the life of a person. You see, these are things which are going to drag your children, drag your husband, drag your wife, drag your family into moral confusion and to see destructive behavior and to fail to confront it and to say, well, I'm doing this because I believe peace and harmony in the family. You know what happened? You fail to confront that when it comes up. You may have peace and harmony that moment, but you will have the devil to pay for the rest of the time because they'll become more and more sullen. They'll become more and more rebellious. And so many parents say, well, you know, they get to be the age of 10, they have a mind of their own. Let me tell you something, they have a mind of their own at 10 months. They have a mind of their own at one week, one hour. So did you. And to see a family member walking a way which is destructive and to fail to confront that is irresponsible. And Adam was irresponsible. You say, well, what if Adam had refused to take of that fruit? He would have lived to have been tempted again another day. He would not have suffered at that moment the same penalty that, I, that Eve had suffered. And so to see a family member beginning to walk a pattern, beginning to run with friends, beginning to adorn themselves in such a way, beginning to express an attitude, husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, to see them begin to follow a pattern of destructive behavior and not to confront it is irresponsible and it assures anguish. Attitude number four, which assures anguish, is the, an attitude of iniquity. And this happens so often. What is that? It's participating in godless behavior on the basis of mutual consent. Well, she did it. I'm going to do it, said Adam. Iniquity, participating in godless behavior on the basis of mutual consent. I can't tell you how many homes are destroyed because of this attitude right here. Well, a man told me one time, my wife is leaving me for another man. And I said, well, let, let's just talk about what's been going on in your family. I said, tell me what, t just tell me what, what you and your wife did in terms of your, together in terms of leisure activities. He said, oh, a lot of times we go out and rent movies, bring them home. I said, well, these clean, moral, highly uplifting. He said, well, Brother Tommy said, you know, uh, but just because, you know, we wouldn't go to an R-rated movie or an X-rated movie, we wouldn't do that, but, but it's just my wife and I together, you know, I mean, what harm is that? What harm is that? What harm is that? 
to look through the peephole of, and, and be a voyeur of others' sexual perversion? Now listen carefully. What harm is that? It destroyed his marriage. She knew that he didn't have eyes only for her. He knew that she didn't have eyes only for him. What harm was that? Couples get married and say, well, you know, we like to do this, or we like to do that, or we like to go to these places. Or, uh, you know, we, we both agreed we were going to buy this. We weren't going we to let this get out of hand. We were going to have this, or we were going to subscribe to this. We weren't going to let this get out of hand. We, we sat down and we had to talk about it. Listen, participating in godless behavior is just that. It's sin, no matter how many people in your family think it's okay. And just getting someone else to agree with you to participate in that does not make it right. I can't tell you how many families are being destroyed right now by the Internet. You say, the Internet destroying families? Well, yeah, it's a vehicle the devil is using. Families are crumbling. People get into relationships on the Internet. Husbands are leaving wives. Wives are leaving husbands for these cyber romances. And to see that and not to put a check on that is both irresponsible and it is iniquitous like putting a gun in the hand of a family member, putting a cartridge in the chamber, letting them aim it at their head and not telling them don't shoot or saying, well, be careful with it. An attitude of iniquity, it will assure anguish. And then a fifth attitude that will assure anguish in your family is impenitence. Impenitence, what is that? It's choosing to excuse sin rather than repent. My, we've had a big lesson in that, haven't we? Choosing to excuse sin rather than repent. What do those following verses say there in chapter 3? Well, God confronted Adam and Eve. And Adam said, well, you know, it's the woman. She may be doing this. But not only that, God, it's the woman you gave me. If you didn't want me to have sin, you shouldn't have given her to me. It's sort of your fault, God. You know, people say, well, if God didn't want me to fulfill these desires, he wouldn't have given them to me. He gave them to you, but he also gave you the perimeters within which you could properly fulfill them. And so the Lord spoke to the woman. What about you? She said, well, the serpent, he, the devil made me do it. And so nobody wants to repent. Do you know why some marriages are at a standstill, a standstill and are beginning to crumble because of a violation of Proverbs 28, 13, which says that a man who covers his sin shall not prosper. The word for cover there is sort of like you fluff up a pillow to make it look like nobody's been sleeping on it. It says a man who covers his sin shall not prosper. The word means make progress. But whoso confesses and forsakes shall have mercy. Confession, repentance, confession. Saying what God says, repentance, an about face. That's the person who will have mercy. And so as long as there is in your, the, your home this refusal to take responsibility for sin and repenting of it and turning from sin and instead excusing it, well, everybody else does it. Well, if I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't get the promotion. Well, if I don't go there, I won't be popular. Well, if I don't let my children do that, I, they won't think I'm a neat parent because their friends do that. Excusing it instead. And if you have this attitude where you fail to face the truth and face up to it when you're caught and confronted and the Holy Spirit 
begins to convict you, and maybe nobody else knows about it but you and God, but God says it's time to quit. He blows the whistle on your heart, and you refuse to go to somebody else and seek their forgiveness. And instead, you try to excuse it. You try to say, well, it was the circumstances. It was what was happening then. And you don't face it up, face up to it. And you don't repent. That's an attitude that will assure anguish. Now, the answer for every one, listen carefully, the answer for every one of those attitudes your way out, your way of deliverance is in Christ. You may say, preacher, every one of those attitudes is in my family. Indifference, irresponsibility, iniquity, impenitence. I'm insensitive to other members of my family. Every one of those is in my home. Every one of those is in my heart. Listen, the answer to that is in Jesus, and that's why God came to the Garden of Eden on the heels of this horrible sin. And he said, listen, the hope for you is in a Redeemer, a Messiah. One of these days, he's coming. You look to him. He will die on the cross. And with his death on the cross, he'll pay the wages of sin, which is death. And I will raise him up from the dead, and he will give you eternal life, and he'll give you the capacity to have victory over sin. And so you may look in your own heart, in your own home, and say, we have those attitudes which assure anguish. If so, I want to encourage you. You look to Jesus this morning. You turn to him. He alone has the answer, but he does have the answer. And in him, you can have victory, you can have cleansing, you can have forgiveness, and you can have victory in your life and in your home. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy for us to allow into our hearts and into our homes these attitudes which assure anguish. Knowing your truth, but not committing ourselves to it. Encouraging others and joining with them on the basis of mutual consent. Refusing to confront godless behavior that destroys. Refusing to own up to sin when we see it in our life confessing it and forsaking it, covering it instead. Father, I pray this morning that in addition to those who have become a part of this church and in addition to those who this morning would receive Jesus as our Savior, that you would bring to this altar those who, kneeling before you, would seek your deliverance from these attitudes which assure anguish. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. In a few moments, we're going to stand. Our choir is going to lead us as we sing a hymn of invitation. And when we stand and sing, this is your personal invitation to come to Christ. There will be counselors across the front. You can come and find them. If you've made a decision in recent days, such as those who are baptized, I'm going to ask you to come and be seated over here to your right where it says seating for new members so we can introduce you. Maybe you joined our church in one of our services, but we've not introduced you. Well, this is your moment.
God's speaking to your heart about becoming a part of this church family, I would urge you to make that decision immediately. When we begin singing, you just step out of the aisle, make your way forward, and find a counselor and say, look, I want to join, we want to join, our family wants to join. Become a part of this church. You may be a university student. You've just come to school. Maybe it's your very first time. You want to be under the watch care of this church. I would encourage you from the very first to come be a part of First Southern and be a part of our university ministry. You come tell a counselor here at the front, look, I'm a student, I'm a member of another church. I want to join under watch care from my home church. It could be you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior. And you don't have the confidence that if you died, you'd spend your forever with God. Well, this is your invitation to come find life in him and forgiveness and cleansing because you see Jesus died on the cross for you. And Jesus has risen from the grave and Jesus is alive today. And he will be alive in your heart if you'll put your trust in him. And so I urge you to find a counselor and say, look, today I want to trust Jesus. Today I want to trust Jesus. Just say that to one of these counselors. And in less time than it would take me to tell it, you can know what it's like to have eternal life and forgiveness of sin and purpose in life and peace with God. This altar is open for people with prayer needs, and I would encourage you to come to this altar. Your invitation to say yes to Jesus. In a spirit of prayer, with heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand together quietly. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting, believing, that in this moment of invitation, you will bring to this altar those whose hearts you have touched and those who will say yes to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The choir begins singing. People are already coming. Would you join them right now? I want to say yes to Jesus. We want to say yes to Jesus this morning. In the